The book of Job, it's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite. And the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job, and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realms, and God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. The prologue is setting up the real questions this book is trying to get at. Questions about God's justice and whether God operates the universe according to the strict principle of justice. And the response to those questions comes as you read through to the end of the book, not at the beginning. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering is simply never revealed. So the prologue concludes with a suffering and bewildered Job who's rebuked by his wife and he's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They're all non-Israelites like Job. And they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition. And this moves us into the main part of the book. First, Job speaks. And this is how the section of the book works. First, Job is going to speak, and then they'll follow a response from a friend. Then Job will respond to that friend. Then another friend will respond to Job's response, and so on, back and forth, for three cycles. And this whole debate is focused on three questions. Is God truly just in character? And does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? As we're going to see, Job and the friends, they're working from a huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person and you honor God, good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things, Bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now, Job's constant argument throughout his speeches is this. First of all, that he's innocent. And so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now, we know from the prologue, both of these things are true. Remember, God himself said, Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. 
God either doesn't run the world according to justice, or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. The friends, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just, the implication being that God always runs the world according to justice in this way. And so they conclude by accusing not God, but Job. Job must have done something really, really bad for God to punish him like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have committed. Job protests to all of this. In fact, he gets so fed up with the friends that he eventually just gives up on them. He takes up his case directly with God. Now, something to be aware of is that Job, he's on an emotional roller coaster in these poems. He used to think that God is just, but now he can't reconcile that with his suffering. And so in some outbursts, Job, he'll accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that thought, he's terrified of it because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. Job is all over the place in this section. And so he makes one last statement of his innocence, and then he demands that God show up personally to explain himself. Now, it's at this point that a surprise friend shows up, Elihu the Buzite. Now, he's not an Israelite, but he does have a Hebrew name. And Elihu, he has the same assumption as Job and the friends. He argues that God is just and that that implies that God always operates the universe according to justice. But then Elihu draws a more sophisticated conclusion about why good people suffer. It may not be punishment for sin in the past. God might inflict suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or God might use pain and suffering to build character or to teach people valuable lessons. Elihu doesn't claim to know why Job is suffering, but one thing he is certain of, Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. Job doesn't even respond to Elihu and the dialogues come to a close. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent and the mystery remains. And then, all of a sudden, God shows up in a whirlwind, and he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. So God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe, and he starts asking him all these questions about the order and origins of the cosmos. Was Job ever around when God architected the earth or organized the constellations? Has Job ever commanded the sunrise or controlled the weather? God has his eyes on all of these cosmic details that Job has never even conceived of. Then God starts going into detail, describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth or the feeding patterns of lions and wild donkeys. What's the point of all this? Remember the assumption of Job and his friends about what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice. Underneath that assumption is a deeper one, that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim about how God ought to run the world. And God's response with this virtual tour, it deconstructs all of these assumptions. It first of all shows that the universe is a vast, complex place and that God has his eyes on all of it, every detail. Job, on the other hand, has only the small horizon of his life experience to draw from. His view of the world is very limited. And so what looks like divine injustice, from Job's point of view, needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job is simply not in a position to make such a huge accusation about God. After the virtual tour, God asks Job if he would like to micromanage the world for a day, according to the strict principle of justice that Job and his friends assume, punishing every evil deed of every person at every moment with precise retribution. The fact is that carrying out justice 
justice in a world like ours, it's extremely complex. It's never black and white like Job and the friends seem to think. Which leads to God's last point. He starts describing these two fantastic creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, which some people think are poetic depictions of a hippo and a crocodile. But more likely, they refer to well-known creatures from ancient Near Eastern mythology that are used elsewhere in the Bible as symbols of the disorder and danger that exist in God's good world. These creatures, they're not evil. God's actually quite proud of them, but they're not safe either. The point is that God's world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect or always safe. God's world has order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, just like these two fantastic creatures. And so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or from other humans, God doesn't explain why. What he says is that we live in an extremely complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice. God responds that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. Job demanded a full explanation from God. And what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. And so Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. Then all of a sudden the book concludes with a short epilogue. First, God says that the friends were wrong, that their ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. And then God says that Job has spoken rightly about him. Now, this is surprising because it can't apply to everything Job said. I mean, we know Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, but God still approves of Job's wrestling, how Job came honestly before God with all of his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says that's the right way to process through all of this, through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, his family, his wealth all restored, not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God. And that's the end of the book. So the book of Job, it doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like the friends, or like Job, accuse God, but based on limited evidence. And so the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he's doing. And that's what the book of Job is all about. All right. Well, now I'm going to invite you to go to uh, the book of Job, perhaps the most depressing book in the entire Bible, right? But I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because uh, if you haven't gotten through Job, it gets better. It gets much, much better. But a lot of it, frankly, of course, is a slog uh, going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as we are going through Scripture. And, um, you know, you might think uh, or wonder, gosh, didn't we just finish Genesis? How did we all of a sudden skip ahead to Job? And the answer is uh, we didn't skip ahead chronologically. Um, We skipped ahead, you know, according to how uh, folks put together uh, the Old Testament scripture. Job, interestingly, um, 
scholars believe was written around the time of uh, the book of Genesis, around the patriarchal age, if you will. Um, And so some people even believe, uh, and they might be right, that it was written before Genesis, and that could be true as well. And there's lots of good evidence to suggest, at least at a bare minimum, it was written around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the patriarchs. Um, Job means persecuted. And if you've been reading through Scripture, and I know many of you have been, um, through the book of Job, you're like, yep, uh, Job was persecuted. That is a very... Uh, appropriate name for him. And of course, with this theme of pain and suffering that all that Job is going through, oftentimes uh, when we go through pain and suffering, questions start arising, right? When people struggle, when we experience pain, when we experience suffering, all of a sudden, questions start popping up all over the place. And as you've been reading along, you may have noticed there are a lot of questions in the book of Job. And so I just thought, you know, to give you a little bit of context, uh, the book of Job has 330 questions. There's a lot of questions as we go through Job. Now, we just went through Genesis, and the book of Genesis, in comparison, had 160 questions-ish going through Genesis. Going ahead uh, to the Gospels, just take Matthew for example, about 150 questions in Matthew. And the longest book, according to uh, chapters, the book of Psalms, uh, lots of, if you were going to get to the Psalms, there's lots, it's a really big book. Uh, the book, the collection of Psalms has about 160-ish uh, questions. Job has 330 questions. So it's question after question after question. And I know some of you like to ask ask questions. And so some of you are like, I get Job. I understand all these questions. And of course, the main theme of Job is suffering and the questions behind suffering. Why does suffering happen? Why does pain and suffering happen? Why does pain and suffering happen to good people? even righteous people. All right, so if you're on page 73, I'm going to invite us to go ahead, bow our heads, and have a word of prayer. Lord, as we prepare uh, this morning to reflect on this very complicated, um, difficult story, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our lives, that we might receive, that you might speak to us, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we all love a good rags to riches story. Somebody who, you know, maybe born poor through hard work, through lots of initiative, through maybe lots of cleverness, and maybe just a little bit of luck too. They, they pull themselves up by the bootstraps. We all love a good rags to riches story. Job is not rags to riches. He is riches to rags. He is actually the opposite of this. Now, when we first meet Job, he is on the top of his game, uh, at least when we meet him. So it says in Job 1, uh, 1, 1, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz, not to be confused with Oz, different story. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. 
So the very first thing we learn about Job is not only is he successful, he's on top of his game, that he's, he's, but he's a good man. He's a righteous man. It says a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. If Job had an Instagram page, it would be like, man, that guy's got it all together. If we were looking at Job online, it's just like, wow, he's checked every box. He is a really, really good guy. And uh, he's wealthy. Uh, And back then, this is how they measured wealth. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, uh, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. And he had many servants. He was the richest person in that area. I mean, at every level, Job has got it going on. But then, of course, tragedy uh, strikes Job. And if Job was not so righteous, that's the problem we have, right? This is the difficulty we have with the story. Because if we learn right out of the gate that Job was kind of a jerk, uh, he wasn't very generous and all that good stuff, we'd be like, yeah, he deserves it anyways, right? But the problem with this story and the reason why we get so uncomfortable, I think, with the book of Job is because that he is a righteous man. He fears God, and yet tragedy comes upon his life. C.S. Lewis was once asked uh, the question, why do the righteous suffer? And he said, why not? They are the only ones who can take it. And Job took it. He took it on the chin. He took it over and over and over. So let's get to uh, Job 1, beginning with verse 13, and all that's going on, this righteous man and all that is going on in his life. One day when Job's sons and daughters, seven sons, three daughters, were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all your shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. You know, it's been said that no one has deserved to suffer less than Job. But perhaps few people have suffered more. I think any one of these four tragedies, these rapid fire, uh, one after another, one, two, three, four uh, tragedies come along, it would take us out, it would take me out. Can you imagine losing a single child? I think most of us cannot imagine the pain, the suffering, how horrible that would be. But Job loses 10 children just like that. He loses employees, livestock, wealth. Later on, we're going to learn in in chapter 7 of Job um, that uh, he he himself was struck down with also 
terrible physical health ailments, that there were maggots uh, in his ulcers on his skin. Chapter 2, there are painful boils. It goes on and on. Chapter 30, he's suffering with osteopathy, which is uh, pain in the bones. So it, Job is not just struggling out there with his family, with his wealth, with his, his business, everything, but he is physically in pain himself. I mean, this guy really struggles. Everything is wiped away. Everything is taken away from Job. He's still got his wife who comforts him. And you're, some of you are laughing, right? Because Job's wife in the comfort is, hey, Job, curse God and die, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of comfort uh, in that statement, right? I mean, if it were us, I think we would think, I, how in the world could Job have put up with all this pain and suffering? And as we hear this story and read about the, the trust upon this righteous man, this man who feared If this could happen to Job, it could happen to me. And this makes us really uncomfortable. And I mean, the important thing for you to know is, yes, just because you're a Jesus follower, maybe you show up to church week after week. Maybe you're reading your Bible uh, day after day. Maybe you pray to God uh, every single day. Maybe you check all the boxes of what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Like Job, you are not immune from pain and suffering. And I know churches out there that will uh, preach and teach on this whole idea that if, when you are faithful, you're, you're going to be good. Nothing's going to happen in your life. Uh, but clearly, those are people who have not read Scripture because this whole book is about what happens when people who are righteous suffer. Why do bad things happen to good people? So it continues on here. Job stood up, tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head, fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had. The Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And the first thing we learn after all this calamity happens, after everything is taken away, is the most expected thing is that Job grieves. He grieves. He goes to the ground. He's like, ah, here's a faithful, righteous person who grieves. But then he does something most unexpected. It says that he worships God. I think this is really important for us to hear and to understand. At the very time where we can be grieving and sitting in pain and suffering, we can also be worshiping. These things are not mutually exclusive. These things uh, can happen at the same time. In fact, in the church, we try to make these things happen at the same time. None of us came in, come to worship on Sunday morning because we feel like it. Maybe you felt like it. Sydney, did you feel like worshiping this morning? Totally nice. The rest of us maybe didn't, but we do it anyways. We come with our pain and our struggle and our suffering, and at the same time, we worship God. These things are not mutually exclusive. And so for the rest of the book, uh, this uh, story of Job, we go through this whole uh, series of trying to understand the question of why. Why 
does this happen? And one of the things we learn out of this, you know, chapter or verse 20 and 21 is that sometimes God calms the storm around you, right? Not in the case of Job. Sometimes God calms us in the midst of the storm, that the storm continues to rage. And somehow, some way, God has given Job this peace. And so, if, has anybody come to worship this morning wanting to know the answer? Yeah, some, I've talked to a couple of you this week. Oh, in fact, I ran into some of you this morning uh, before worship and said, oh, you're going to tell us why do good people, why do faithful people, why do righteous people suffer? And I said, well, you're going to hear about Job today. All right, some of you are taking notes. If you're taking notes, here, I'm going to give you the answer of why do righteous people suffer. You ready? I don't know. I don't know. We don't ever learn why righteous people suffer. We don't ever fully understand. Even, and I mean, you, you guys are reading this, right? It just goes on and on and on. These ideas, these, these wonderings, these formulas, these accusations, trying to answer this question that is clearly, as long as people have been on the earth, they've been asking this question. Why is there so much pain and suffering? And so for 42 chapters, we don't really learn why there is pain and suffering in Job's life. Um, but I'm going to just kind of go over three general categories why you and I experience pain and suffering in our lives. Now, there are technically four, um, but I usually preach a three-point sermon. So my first point is point A and point B. So there's uh, three general categories of why you and I experience pain and suffering. These are three possibilities. Uh, number one, original sin. You know, oftentimes as we read story after story throughout Scripture, it all goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 explain so much of the rest of Scripture. And we go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and this whole idea, when God created the world, everything was good and good and good. And then God created human beings and it says, oh, it was really good. And, and Adam and Eve lived in the garden with God, and they were in fellowship with God. And it was all really, really good. But then we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, and that's when the enemy, the Satan, comes on to the scene. And Satan, known as the accuser, tricks Adam and Eve into sinning, into eating the forbidden fruit. You guys know this story. And over and over and over throughout the scriptures, we learn that there are consequences to this. When Adam and Eve sin, God says, I've got, you can do anything you want. There's all sorts of thou shalt. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that, thou shalt do this. You have free reign of the garden. There's just one thou shalt not. And in that moment, they said, God, forget you. We're going to do what we want. And we're going to go after that one thing you told us to not. 
when sin entered the world, it changed everything. It wreaked havoc everywhere. At a macro level, things like hurricanes and fires and tsunamis and, and all that stuff, all the things out there all of a sudden became corrupted by sin. They became broken. Everything that we see, all the problems of the world as it relates to natural disasters, if you will, but also down to, to the micro level, to the microscopic level, to the cellular level, even at the cells in our own bodies became broken. This is why a child who is three years old develops cancer. It's because of original sin, the brokenness of creation. And it breaks our heart. We see the sin and brokenness out there, but then we experience the sin and brokenness in our own lives, in our own bodies. In the second part of part one, why do we experience pain and suffering? Not only because of original sin, it's because the enemy, Satan, is still busy working in our lives. You know, when Satan corrupted the world as part of that original sin, he didn't just go to hell and hang out there. What we le read in the story is that Satan wanders about the earth and continues to just wreak havoc in people's lives. So not only is it the original sin that, that has broken everything, but Satan and his minions, the demons, are still active in this world. We can't ever forget this. And some of you might be thinking, do you really believe in demons? Yes, I really believe in demons because Scripture tells us that there are evil forces still moving uh, in the world. Satan will eventually end up in hell, but he's not there now. He's out in the world, busy, doing stuff, wreaking habit, uh, havoc uh, in our lives. Uh, we learn in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul calls Satan the God of this world. I mean, Paul understood this idea that Satan is not just somewhere. He is here. He is the God of this world, and we ought not to deny him. Jesus, in John 10, refers to Satan, the enemy, as the thief. He says the, the, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. That's what he's doing in your life and in my life. Probably not Satan. He's, 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 you know, he's got bigger fish to fry than you and me. But there are a lot of demons among us, and they are after us. And they've come to, to steal our joy. And they've come to, to, to kill our faith in Jesus. And they want to destroy us in our relationships and I think if we deny the power of Satan and his dominions among us, we, we're giving him a, a, an edge up. Satan is active in this world, and we can never let down our guard. In fact, in Ephesians uh, 6, uh, you'd have to go all the way to the end of your Bibles. I looked it up this morning. It's on page 583. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, 
but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. I mean, Paul's telling us when things happen, they're going to manifest themselves in our lives, the brokenness. But make no mistake about it. Behind that is Satan and the enemy and the evil that all he is doing in our lives and in this world. Original sin. Way back when God was creating the world, after God created the world. And then uh, Satan uh, and the ways in which uh, he continues to move in every corner uh, of the earth. Second reason third reason we sin we sin i mean sometimes we want to blame everything on the devil you know that the devil made me do it the enemy made me want to do it sometimes people will tell me they're struggling with something oh satan is chasing me down i've just got you know this evil chasing me down i'm like well tell me what's going on and they share with me about some of the details of why they feel like they're being attacked and you know for example, you know, they've, they've basically, uh, they've been really greedy with their money. They've spent more than they take in. And all of a sudden they got this debt and they're like, oh, now I'm really stressed because I don't know what to do. No, you are your own worst enemy. You are the one who brought this on you. That is not the devil. That is you not making good decisions about money or relationships. I hear this all the time. Oh, I'm a wreck with relationships. Really? Tell me about that. And then the more they go into the details about, you know, the, the details of their relationship, I'm just like, hello, you're the devil. You're the one self, you're, you're, you're doing this to yourself. When you are not in a God-honoring relationship, yes, you're going to struggle with relationships. But don't blame it on the devil. You're self-sabotaging. That's what you're doing. And oftentimes, I don't know about you, maybe, maybe this is just me. We don't want to call sin, sin. We want to just say, oh, the devil's after me. No, as long as we're denying sin and the ways in which we self-sabotage, then Satan's just going to leave us alone. He doesn't have to do anything to us because we're doing just fine self-sabotaging. Maybe you can relate to this one uh, when we sin. We spend our time uh, not taking care of ourselves. We eat poorly. We drink too much. We put things in our bodies. We smoke things. We don't exercise. I mean, we, we, it's our lifestyle, right? It's what we do or don't do in our own lives. And then we get sick or we don't feel well or something happens to us. We sin. That's us. It's our fault. It's our responsibility. And guess what? When we sin, just like there are consequences. There are consequences uh, to our own sin in our lives. Proverbs 11.18 really talks about, you know what? Guess what? You reap what you sow. Sometimes we experience pain and suffering in our lives because of original sin or the devil is moving all around us. But sometimes it's self-inflicted. We sin ourselves and we're bearing the consequences. Number three, other people sin. Sometimes we experience pain and suffering in our lives because other people sin. 
I think maybe perhaps one of the most obvious examples of this happened a few months ago in Israel on October 7th. There were a group of people doing what they're doing, right? And then all of a sudden they're invaded by a group of terrorists who come and kill innocent people. It was pure evil what happened on that day. Those people didn't deserve to experience pain and suffering. Those survivors who lost loved ones on that day, it wasn't their fault, but it's the sins of others who've inflicted pain and suffering on the innocent. And now here we are a few months later, and to be fair, there's lots more pain and suffering on the other side. Much of the pain and suffering that is going on in Gaza today is innocent people suffering, not because of what they did. Women and children suffering in Gaza today, not because of what they've done, but because of what others have done, other sins. I mean, it goes back and forth, right? There's plenty of blame to go all around. Or maybe you're thinking about a drunk driver. Some of you know stories. You know people who were killed in a car accident, not because they were just doing what they were doing, driving down the road, right? And then a drunk driver, someone else who sinned, came and killed them. Pain and suffering. That person didn't deserve it. Or maybe you can think of stories. Maybe this is your story. Some of you have experienced pain and suffering because of your parents. The ways in which your parents or a loved one abused you or neglected you. I mean, maybe that's your story. You didn't deserve it. You were just a kid growing up, right? But your parent or a loved one, a family member, abused you or neglected you. And you're experiencing pain and suffering. Sometimes we experience pain and suffering because of the sins of others. Now, the challenging part in all these, you know, th four buckets of sin, you know, why do good people, righteous people, faithful people experience pain and suffering, is it's not always clear. It's not always clear which bucket uh, this pain and suffering is coming from, which category, if you will. And so the question I kind of want to shift to a little bit is how? How do we respond to suffering? Because frankly, this is much of the book of Job. I mean, you've got just this little part at the beginning where we learn that Job is experiencing pain and suffering, and they spend a lot of time trying to describe why the pain and suffering is, uh, is happening. But then we see Job's friends responding to pain and suffering. So I want to start with when others are suffering in pain, how do we respond? And, and from chapter 4 to 37, 33 chapters, it's this idea of responding to pain and suffering. And really, I think we can all agree that Job's friends are kind of Monday morning quarterbacking all this, right? I mean, they've got, they've got their formulas, they've got their ideas. Hey, Job, it, you did it, it, you're experiencing pain and suffering, and it's the, the if-that kind of thing. Because you did this, this is why it's happening. And we do this all the time. Some of you, uh, today, later on, you're going to be Sunday afternoon quarterbacking. Tomorrow morning, you'll be Monday morning quarterbacking, right? 
you will be moaning and groaning why your football team didn't win, right? Some of you are going to be like, well, if Taylor Swift had just shown up and done the right thing, you know, then my team would have won. This is what we do. As we Monday morning quarterback, that's exactly what Job's friends are doing, is they are Monday morning quarterbacking. But I love how this, uh, this story begins in terms of after the pain and suffering, uh, they show up and they just sit with Job. I think in that moment, they've done something really, really good. They've just shown up and just invited him to spew, invited him to vent a little bit. But as it goes on, they start, you know, Job, you're doing it, you did it wrong. You're, 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 you're wrong motivations and you've got this sin and pain in your life because of these things. And, and the moment they open their mouth is when everything goes wrong, right? When everything goes south. In fact, at, at some point in time, uh, Job calls them miserable comforters. And that's what they are, right? They're miserable comforters. And so this morning, I want to give you just some real practical uh, uh, way that you don't have to be a miserable comforter. When you experience someone else, a friend, a loved one, a relative who is going through pain and suffering, how do you provide good comfort to them? How do you uh, respond to their pain and suffering? I think the most important thing we can do is, is like what Job's friends do, is just show up. We don't have to say much. Just show up. A couple of years ago, uh, I learned that uh, a pastor, I didn't really know him very well, uh, Perry Fruling is his name, uh, he lost his dad. And he, his, his dad was living over in Flatville. And so uh, uh, I learned about the funeral, and he's an, he's an LCMC pastor, he's a Lutheran pastor like me, and I don't know Perry really well, but I just thought, you know, I feel like I need to just show some support to Perry. There's not a lot of other uh, Lutheran pastors in the area. So I, I drove over uh, to Flatville. Uh, took me about an hour, if you've never been to Flatville. There's a big church there, right, Brad? Out in the middle of the country. Stood in line for about 10 minutes, um, you know, waiting to talk to Perry and his family. Got to Perry, and I just, I, I, I put my arms around him. I hugged him, and I said, Perry, I'm so sorry. And, and, and I was, we talked for less than 30 seconds Got back in my car, drove home. That was it. Just, just not, it, was, it was just that simple. And I remember thinking to myself driving home, boy, that was quick. I wasn't there very long. But three months later, I got a, a, an email from Perry saying, Brian, I will never forget that you drove all the way to Flatville just to give me a hug and give me comfort. He said, you have no idea how much that meant to me. See, oftentimes when we're experiencing pain and suffering, we lose someone, we feel like we've got to say something. We've got to have some kind of profound words. And I've got to tell you, as a pastor, I feel extra pressure. I'm supposed to be the guy who shows up and is like, oh, let me tell you, you know, exactly what's going on and why you should feel so good about this. I don't do that. If I know you're going through pain and suffering, I try to show up and I try to speak as few words as possible. Because when someone is in pain and suffering, they don't need to hear that you understand. You don't understand. And though they lost their father and maybe you lost your father, their circumstances, their relationship, their dynamic with their father was different. We don't fully understand. And so don't say, I understand. Just say, I'm sorry. 
Just be present with them. Look them in the eye. Just love them and care for them. Don't say, oh, they're in heaven now. Ah, you don't know that. They don't need to hear that. Oh, God just needed another angel in his chorus, right? That's just theologically wrong. Don't say that. It's not helpful. It's not only not accurate, but it's also not helpful. In that moment when people are grieving, just be with them, love them. And don't, I mean, if, we, if you learn nothing else from Job, it's to close your mouth. I mean, that's the takeaway from me on all this. We don't need to explain to people anything. We just show up. So what do we do when we suffer? I know some of you are suffering. I know some of you are struggling. I know some of you are going through some really difficult times. And I think in many ways, I hope as you read through Job, you hear all the emotions Job is uh, describing. I mean, sometimes Job is really angry. It's okay to be angry when you're in pain. Sometimes he's shaking his fist at God. Sometimes he's blaming. Sometimes he's crying. Sometimes he's grieving. Sometimes he's just kind of in this pity party. I mean, he's, he's got the full gamut of emotions and response in the midst of his own pain. And what I want you to hear is it's okay. However you are feeling in the midst of your suffering and your struggle and your pain, God can take it. He can handle whatever you're feeling and however you might be responding to your loss, to your hurt, to your pain. And I love in the midst of all this, Job is emoting, he's, he's uh, venting to his friends. But in the midst of it, in Job 19.25, he says these words that just jumped off the page for me. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. So in the midst of all that you're feeling, all that you're experiencing, all the processing of your, in the midst of your pain and suffering, Job expresses faith. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I love this. I mean, this is way, way, way in the Old Testament. This is long before Jesus shows up. This is before Moses shows up, and he even, uh, where God identifies his name to Moses. We're going to get there. Yahweh, I am that I am. This is long before the Mosaic Covenant shows up, the, the Ten Commandments, if you will. This is long before King David. This is long before Daniel. This is long before much of the prophecy that is pointing to the person of Jesus in the midst of Job's pain and suffering. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Somehow, someway, God has given Job hope. He's given him this vision into the future that everything is going to be okay when he puts his trust and faith in him. And getting back to the story of Job, I love this idea that we not only go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to understand, but in Job, we also look forward to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. 
And when we live in both of these worlds, looking forward to Jesus, I know that my Redeemer lives. And we look back and see how Satan has corrupted everything in the world. All of a sudden it's like, ah, I'm in the story too. I get it. I understand Job. Because he's thinking forward that his his Redeemer lives. He's placing his trust. Even though he doesn't fully get it, he's he's saying, ah, I, I believe that one day ultimate freedom, ultimate peace, ultimate healing is going to come. I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, even though I don't understand it, even though I don't get it. I mean, there's just so many questions. Job does not understand, but he says, in the midst of that, I know that my Redeemer lives. Fast forward, after some time, God looks at Job and says, you know, God came out of a whirlwind, if you will, and and God starts speaking after Job has yacked and his friends have yacked and it's gone back and forth trying to figure out why. And then God gives Job a science quiz. You guys, the science quiz yet part of Job? Says, hey, Job, let me tell you about the physical world. I threw the stars up in the sky. Job, do you know how that works? And he goes through and explains all these scientific things. And then he says to Job, hey, do you know how that works? And so God, I I think it's so interesting that God starts asking questions too, as if God doesn't know the answers, right? But these are rhetorical questions. And the point of God's science quiz for Job is, hey, dude, you look around, you don't even understand what you can see. You don't see the, you see the physical realm and you don't understand it. What makes you think you can understand the spiritual realm? You don't even get the stuff right in front of your eyes. Why in the world, Job, do you think that you can understand what you cannot see? And it's this beautiful um, putting Job in his place. And of course the obvious answer to all these rhetorical questions on this science quiz is Job gets an F. And as we're reading through this science quiz, we ought to think to ourselves, oh yeah, I guess I get an F too. I don't really get it. So why in the world do I think that somehow, some way, I can understand what God wants to say uh, to me? And so then let's look at Job's response. Here we are at the end of Job, Job 42, verse 6. He says, I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job confesses his sin. He says, oh, it's so arrogant. Oh, I got it wrong, God. And he humbles himself. He repents. He says, God, I'm so sorry. I got it wrong. I take it all back. And then God's response to Job that we see throughout the Old Testament, we'll see in the New Testament, it's it's consistent, right? God is consistent. When Job confesses his sin, when he repents, when he acknowledges he is wrong, he's forgiven. And those of you who were here last week are probably thinking, wait a second, didn't we just talk about forgiveness last week? Yes. We'll talk about it next week. In the next week, in the next week, this is a theme over and over throughout Scripture, that whenever uh, God's people, whenever you and I come before God, repent, confess our sin, he promises to forgive us all our sin. This is why we practice confession uh, every single week in worship, because it's, it's just 
the relationship, it's the dynamic between us and God. God forgives, God restores, and God gives Job a new life. And so the story of Job concludes with this blessing. That all the animals, all the servants, all the employees are doubled in number, right? So it's this, it's this uh, teaching of when we confess, when we humble ourselves before God, he will bless us. Now, Job doesn't get 10 more, uh, 20 children out of the whole deal. I mean, I think we can agree that would not be a blessing, right? That would be probably a curse, right? But he gets, he gets a whole bunch more kids, right? And he's, everything is restored. Everything is really, really good. And the story of Job ends. And we never really fully get at this question of why do bad things happen to good people. So I just want to close uh, with just a, a thought. And it's simply this. Never let what you don't understand about God rob you of God's love and care for you. All those questions you have, don't allow them to be a stumbling block in your faith. Instead, focus on what you do know as it relates to Scripture. Because as you're reading through Scripture, and I know so many of you are, you're going to be like, I don't get this, I don't get that, I don't get that. There's going to be a lot of questions, a lot of opportunities for you to stumble and ask questions and wonder. But what I want to encourage you is don't get stuck on the questions. Don't get stuck on your questions. Focus on what you do know. Focus on what you do understand. Focus on God's love for your life. Because here's the deal, and you know this. The pain and suffering that we all experience in our lives, what we do know about God, we put that into the hands of a good and loving God. He can do miraculous things through that. God can take the pain, the suffering, the struggle, and turn it into something really good. And I'll bet you we could go around this morning and pass the microphone, and I think each one of us could share story after story after story of once upon a time you were in a season of pain and suffering. And you, in the moment, you didn't see it. You didn't see God's goodness and faithfulness. But now you look back weeks, months, maybe years later. It's in the past. And you're like, oh, look what God did with that. Because of that pain and suffering, I grew so much in my faith. Because of that pain and suffering, I'm a stronger person. Because of that pain and suffering, God was able to redeem someone else and me. Probably not in the moment, though. In the moment of that pain and suffering, we're invited like Job to just proclaim, I know that my Redeemer lives I think the best illustration I've, I've heard uh, about this idea of what it means to be Job in the midst of it uh, is uh, there was a bear, a bear in a cage. And this bear in the cage was confined and trapped and miserable. There he is. And there was a scientist. And the scientist wanted to understand more about this bear so that he could help the bear, and so that the scientist could help all bears. And so what the scientist would do would poke and prod and do different experiments on this bear. But what the bear is thinking is, this guy keeps jabbing me. He keeps poking at me. I'm confined. I'm scared. He's trying to hit, hurt me. He's trying to kill me. 
And this goes on and on and on. And the bear does not understand the intentions of the scientist. And the scientist just wants to help the bear live a better life. He wants to help all bears, right? But the bear is just losing his mind. And pretty soon, the scientist gets out this tranquilizer. And all the bear sees is a gun. He's like, oh boy, here we go. This is going to go really, really bad. So the bear gets really angry. Um, he starts rattling the cage. He's, he's, he's getting ready to, you know, he's going to fight. He's going to kill. He's going to take down this scientist. And then the scientist puts the tranquilizer in the bear. A couple hours later, the bear wakes up. Not in a cage, but out in freedom. See, when you're in the midst of your pain and suffering, you don't know what God's up to in your life. In the midst of your pain and suffering, you don't know God, how God might use that to grow you, to heal you, and to restore you. And so this morning, as we close the book on Job, I want to invite you to focus on what you do understand as we go through the rest of the Bible. God's goodness, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. And when we do that, I think like Job, we too will be blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you are a God who meets us even in the midst of our pain and suffering, especially in the midst of our pain and suffering. But God, we don't understand when we're there. And so, Lord, as we're emoting and processing our grief, our struggle, our heartache, just be with us. Be tender with us, God. And remind us that you are with us even in the pain and suffering and struggle. God, give us the faith to proclaim, I know that my Redeemer lives. Help us, God, to look forward to a future, a better future, a future with you, a future of healing, a future of reconciliation, and a future of ultimate freedom. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.